good singing this morning. You may be seated. Good singing indeed. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter number 8. Hebrews 8 is where we'll be for the preaching this morning. It is good to have somebody here to watch me dunk Alec today. How many are here just to see that? Raise your hand if you're here this morning. Raise real high. Come on. You got, he's going to get up in front of everybody and get dunked. You can at least raise your hand. It's good to have the whole family here with us. A good number of them. All of them are invited, but a good number are coming to our house for dinner afterwards. So uh, we're going to have a good time. How about that windstorm last night? I had to go out back and hook up to my old farm truck, our, our kid's trampoline, because it tried to blow away. So when you all come over, there's going to be like a weird old 2000 Toyota pickup truck just sitting out there hooked to a trampoline because I didn't have time this morning to get it fixed. But uh, it's been a good week here around the church, a lot of activity, a lot of things going on. Looking forward to this morning and then this evening. I hope you can be back for the Sunday school hour, for the teaching time there as well. Hebrews chapter 8 is where we are this morning. Continuing in our study of the book of Hebrews, we covered seven chapters, and now we look into this short chapter, but as we look at it, there's a lot to cover. The final point this morning will be deep. I always warn you when we're preaching, if there's a deep thought, I try to put it out front and let you know. It doesn't mean you can sleep through the first two points, but when we get to that third one, there is a a process that we're going to look at of how we understand the Bible and how God has progressively revealed Himself from Genesis and does all the way through the book of Revelation. And it's dealt with in verse number 13 of Hebrews chapter number 8. But let's read the first six verses this morning, and then we'll jump into our superior Savior and study His pattern for us today. The Bible says, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum, or this is the completion of it. This is the totality. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man... Now, we noted in the passage before last week in chapter 7, that phrase, this man, is a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That is used often here in Hebrews because the argument is to those Judaizers, those that were still following the Jewish faith. He says, this man have somewhat also to offer. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law. Again, we talked about that last week in chapter number 7. Who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God, when he was about to make the tabernacle for, saith he, saith God, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. But now hath he, that's Christ, obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he, that is Christ, the mediator of a better covenant, which is established upon better promises. Father, this morning as we come to the Word of God, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts. My responsibility as a pastor is to deliver truth. The Spirit of God's responsibility within the believer's life is to illuminate that truth, to make it alive to us. Father, if there are those here this morning that don't know Jesus Christ, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. For those of us that do know Christ as our Savior, I pray that today would be a day of clarification, where we would understand what the Bible is teaching. We live in a world that is fallen. We are surrounded by sinfulness and wickedness. We are filled up, it seems, in every turn with the evil of this world. Help us to understand the pattern that Christ sets for us, a perfect pattern, complete and pure. Help us to know and to see the truth, and may that truth then set us free. Bless all that is said, all that is done in this hour, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapters 8, 9, and 10 really are one continual thought here in Hebrews. It is a development, if you will, of the practical elements of our salvation. It is too much to tackle all three chapters on a Sunday morning. And so you're welcome. We're not going to be here for hours on end. We'll be here for about 30 to 35 minutes as we look at the truth here in chapter number 8. This week, we will study Christ being superior in his pattern in chapter 8. 
Next week, we will see Christ being superior in his purification or that which he offered on the cross of Calvary, purifying us as an atonement for our sin. And then in chapter 10, we will see the superiority in his power or his enablement from that sacrifice. So this morning, I asked the question at the beginning, what is a pattern? And what do you think of when you think of a pattern? Some of us think of like a picture or an image and say, this is what the psychologist tells me I'm supposed to see, and therein is the pattern. Uh, Some of the ladies that were out here making blankets and pillows for the hospital yesterday were sitting in the lobby, and as they were preparing and making those things, there was an example set forward. There was a pattern that they were to follow. And in following that particular pattern, they knew the template. They knew what was expected. Well, here in Hebrews chapter 8, what the writer of Hebrews is doing, he is going to explain that the Old Testament that the Jews themselves had been holding on to, the Old Testament and the law being an outward example or a ritual or the rules and regulations that we would follow, the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots, had given way to not an external but to an internal relationship. And that pattern is formed in the person of Jesus Christ himself. The Old Testament pattern was good and necessary, but it was incomplete. Christ is superior in what he accomplished as he set foot on this earth. A pattern could be simply said as an example for others to follow. In chapter 8 here in verse number 5, we read these words. We saw that the law of the Old Testament served unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. We also read at the end that Moses himself, as he was preparing the tabernacle, did so according to a pattern or an established pattern that God had given to him. If we were to continue our reading into chapter 9 and in verse 9, we would read that the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, worship in those places was a figure for their time. In chapter 9 and verse 23, we would find that the Old Testament rituals are noted as being therefore necessary, the patterns of things should be purified by them. These things that are purified were purified by the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats in chapter 9. We are purified by Jesus Christ. We'll study that next week. In chapter 10 and verse 1, we would read this. It says there that we find the law was a shadow of good things to come. God, we can then reckon, is kind and gracious to give us a pattern of what salvation is and what salvation does for us. What salvation requires and what man receives when they receive salvation. That's what Jesus establishes here in Hebrews chapter 8. That's what God explains through the writer of this letter. The writer of Hebrews is moving off of the principles of Christ in his person in the first seven chapters, and he's moving into the practical application of salvation. If you've been saved, so what? What are you supposed to do with it? Well, you're supposed to live. You're supposed to act. You're supposed to behave in a way that is pleasing to Almighty God. He begins by explaining the Old Testament pattern in our passages, and then he moves on to the superior pattern of, that is formed in Jesus Christ. He begins, number one, in our outlines by giving a description of the obvious. In the six verses we read, we find an obvious pattern. Now, pastors are often found doing this, and I'm going to do it again today. So I'm going to give you a little secret trick of the trade. As a guy that did not go to seminary and did not go to Bible college, but as a self-taught pastor from the Word of God, I have learned the tricks of the trade, and that is this. Tell people something. Then remind people what you just told them, and then tell those people that thing again. What the writer does in these early verses of chapter 8 is that very thing. He says this, Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Hey, let me remind you of what I just told you. You say, well, the Bible would be a lot shorter if God would just stick to saying the things that were necessary. Can I tell you, sometimes repeating things to us is necessary. As a parent of three boys, I can tell you I often continually tell those boys the same thing, the same thing, the same thing, the same thing. And if you ask my wife, she is got four boys in the house, and she tells me the same thing, and then tells the boys the same thing, and the boys the same. The point is, is that this is a repetitive process. This is just who we are and how we are. And so what he does is he gives us a description of that which he's made plain before. 
He summarizes here chapters 5, 6, and 7, where we learned about the priesthood, where we learned about the perfection of Jesus Christ. This concept was disturbing to the Judaizer mind. Those that were wanting to follow Jesus, but not willing to leave their own religion. Wanting to trust in Jesus Christ alone, but not sure that the law of Moses had fully been done away with. That's what this chapter is going to do. It's going to practically pivot them. It's going to make them realize that God himself was going to bring that Old Testament to a close. Aaron's priesthood they are being told, has no impact on your salvation. Only Christ and His eternal priesthood does. This is the pattern. So the writer describes, letter A, Christ's excellent ministry. He begins that process of explaining to us what the ministry of Christ was and just its very nature. How excellent was that nature? Can I tell you, Christ's work on Calvary was complete. When he cried from the cross, it is finished, he meant it. It was done. What we read here in verse number one, the writer says, we have such an high priest. That is the one I've just told you about in chapters five, six, and seven. Who is what? Set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. In other words, the majestic throne that God himself inhabits in eternal future, eternal past, and in the present day. That throne of heaven, what it's like, I can't imagine. Mind's eye cannot even begin to comprehend it. But in that place, the Bible says, Jesus Christ sat down. And he says here, he is set on that throne. Our high priest is set at the right hand of his father. What else then could you possibly add to your salvation? What else needs to be done? If Christ is settled in his work and has offered it before his father, the majesty on high, what more could you possibly do to convince God he needs to save you? He's done it all. That's what the writer is trying to drive home. There is a completion to the work of Jesus Christ. His ministry in the sanctuary of the true heavenly tabernacle, in verse number 2, is to serve as a reminder of forgiveness. His hands, his feet, and his pierced side bear the marks. It is an amazing and an incredible thought of Jesus Christ in his incarnation. From the moment Jesus Christ was born until eternal future, he will always inhabit a glorified and perfected body. Before that, he was existent, the Bible teaches us. Before Abraham was, I am, he said. But from that moment forward, he exists in that body in a glorified state. There is another truth that is even more awe-inspiring for us and is purposeful in this. Jesus Christ, in his perfected state today, has pierced hands, pierced feet, and a pierced side. When he appears to those apostles in the upper room, what does he say to doubting Thomas? Stick your hand in if you don't believe in me. Stop and think about that. What his ministry is in heaven today is in before the throne of God, seated with the majesty on high, to remind God, as if God would ever forget, to remind God just what the cost of your sins were. That's a pretty high price. kind of makes us to begin to think about how casually some of us consider sin in our own lives. Why we just treat it so nonchalantly is beyond me. And by the way, there was many a year in my life that I treated it that way. The Bible says that Christ is ministering in that tabernacle. His ministry in the sanctuary is that of remembrance. Every believer has Jesus Christ ministering in the holy things of heaven for each of us. That is an amazing truth. Just as the priest in the law, he says, would minister daily in the temple and tabernacle on preparing offerings and sacrifices and gifts offered by the Israelites, so too Jesus ministers in heaven. So every time you sin, Jesus Christ reminds his Father as our advocate, while the accuser of the saints, the devil himself, is there, he reminds the Father, I died for that sin too. Can you understand then why Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? What is his reply? God forbid. 
It is a picture in heaven that I don't think our mortal minds can fully understand. And I think the writer of Hebrews understands that we can't fully grasp it. But the pattern of the Old Testament temple and tabernacle teaches us what this means. If I sinned, I had to go to the priest and I had to make an offering. And in that offering, it would be given to God again. And what we do is when we sin, Jesus Christ comes back and makes that offering. He doesn't have to die again for your sins. He did that once for all, the Bible says. But that offering is continually ministered before the Father in heaven. By the way, another deep and profound thought for us to draw from this excellent ministry of Christ that is spoken of here is the prayers, thanksgiving, service, and personal sacrifices that we make as believers to God are also a portion of those sacrifices. Look at the end of verse number 3. He says, Wherefore, It is of necessity, or it is needful, it is going on, it has to happen, that this man have somewhat also to offer. When you praise God, when you pray to God, when you serve God, and when you sacrifice to God, Ephesians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, over and again, it's called a sweet-smelling sacrifice to the Lord. In other words, Jesus Christ is in heaven saying, See what your saint did. What a wonderful thing. Isn't salvation, Father, grand? Isn't it good? Isn't it a blessing? Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2 and verse 5. Ye also, as lively stones, or stones that are made alive, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Who is the one that administrates those spiritual sacrifices? According to Hebrews chapter 8, it's Jesus Christ. Acceptable to God by whom? Jesus Christ, the throne of majesty on high, accepts our service through the Spirit's indwelling and empowering and through Jesus Christ's gift of salvation. He accepts our spiritual sacrifices by Jesus Christ. That's what Hebrews 8 is telling us. Sometimes we get this picture that Jesus is in heaven and he's kind of just sitting around bored until the rapture. Well, it'll happen soon enough. These passages are practical. In heaven today, when you sin, he has to present. He doesn't have to die again, but he is reminding these paid for that. When you are successful in serving and walking in the Spirit and fulfilling the things of God, the eternal things of value, he is in heaven ministering those sacrifices as a sweet-smelling savor to his Father in heaven. That is what this passage is teaching us. Look, we are stating the obvious, and we all know this, right? But do we know it? It's a discussion of the obvious, what should be. Christ takes our offerings. He takes our sacrifices. He takes our service as the minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle. Why? Because that's his job, according to verse number 3 of chapter 8. Those things we do enter the true tabernacle of heaven, and Jesus himself brings them before the throne of his Father. It brings purpose and meaning to the fact that our sacrificial service and giving are pleasing sacrifices to God. They're not pointless. They're pleasing So I wonder on this, what has Christ had to offer on your behalf this week? Well, I died for him, but look at how they're living. The Father, by the way, is not surprised by this. I'm having this conversation. It's a divine conversation. It does not play out like I'm saying it here. I'm only putting it into words so that our brains can kind of put it within context, what is happening, just like the writer does. But effectively, the conversation at some spiritual level has to be, I died for them, they're forgiven. I died for them, they're forgiven. How many times in a day does Jesus have to say that for you? You see, that's why the world's in the shape it's in. It's not because of the unbelievers living like godless people. They are godless people. It's because of Christians not living like godly people. That's the point. That's what he's trying to tell us. He doesn't ask you to be perfect. He asks you to pursue holiness. That's what God's desire is. The description of the obvious is Christ's excellent ministry. But letter B, we find it's also Christ's empathetic mediation. You say, boy, you are stretching it. Well, I don't know. I think there's empathy in verse 6. 
I certainly find mediation in verse number 6 of Hebrews chapter 8. Jesus wasn't a priest after Aaron, so he doesn't offer temporal things, verses 4 and 5 tell us. That is his more excellent ministry. But the second obvious description is of Christ's empathetic mediation. Now, God the Father could be sympathetic to our sin. But God the Father could not and is not empathetic to our sins. Jesus Christ is. Why? Because empathy is a lived experience. Jessica and I, years ago, our first child that we were expecting, we lost. And so anytime in our church someone loses a child, there is great pain in our heart because empathetically we can come to them and we can say, it stinks. It hurts. It doesn't make sense. There's no reason this should happen other than sin and death exist in this world. And so empathetically we can come. Do you know what I can't do? Both of my parents are still living. I cannot go to someone and empathetically say to someone, I know what it feels like to lose a parent. But many of you can. In empathy, you can go. So that's the difference between sympathetic and empathetic. What we find here is Christ is our mediator. He's the mediation. He is the one that intervenes. That's what the word mediation means. It is an intervention in a dispute. It is a remedy that restores both parties to an amicable solution. The empathy of Christ is that He died for our sins. He, God the Son, became sin for us. That song that we sang this morning, It's Still the Cross, is a wonderful picture of that. We remind ourselves over and over and over again that Christ can be our mediator. He can be the go-between between us and God the Father in His holiness, in His justice, in His righteousness. He can go between because He lived sinlessly on this earth. Verse number 6 the latter half, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant. That word covenant there just means promise or testament, agreement, oath, which was established upon better promises. Jesus Christ's empathy is from his earthly existence, his incarnation. By becoming flesh, he knows our frame. He knows our temptations. The Bible tells us that he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without what? Sin. That's how he could die vicariously for my sins. Because as a perfect man and as perfectly God, he could accomplish the atonement of my soul. He could buy back my redemption. The Bible tells us even here in the book of Hebrews, it is appointed that a man wants to die. And after this, the judgment. But Jesus died for me, so when I ask Jesus to save me from my sins, I accept his death for mine. That's what the Bible is teaching here. And as a mediator, he's before his Father in heaven and saying, I died for him, I died for her, I died for that one. He mediates on our behalf. I remember years ago when I was a contractor at the Pentagon, we got bought out by a bigger company. And my boss told me when we went into the meeting, I was a young 20-year-old something uh, guy, and, and I was the guy running the contract, but I was not the guy negotiating the contract because I was young and dumb and naive. And the big boss man, when I walked in, said to me, Kyle, shut up. <laughs> yes, sir, Don. Don't say a word. Yes, sir, Don. And in the process, the mediator, the guy that was arbitrating the process of buying out our contracts, began negotiating, and I did a lot of this. <laughs> I was a lot I wanted to say, but I didn't say anything because the mediation process was taking place. This process of mediation is one in the temporal realm we know. It is corrupted often in this temporal realm. But in heaven, whenever God looks at us in our vile wickedness and our perpetual sinfulness, He remembers Christ, our mediator. That's why He says, by how much also He is the mediator. It's because of His excellent ministry that He can be an empathetic mediator for us. The Old Testament follower of God could only long for such a reality. Their pattern in the Old Testament was a God who was far off and could never be attained or reached. Only the high priest, only on the one holy day of atonement, the high and holy day could enter into his presence. But otherwise, he was aloof. He was gone from them. Not in ours. Christ and his Holy Spirit dwells within us. 
Read Romans chapter 8 if you want to see the impact of Christ's mediation on our behalf. His indwelling spirit allows us to live the righteousness that the law intended, Romans, Paul tells the Romans. It is through Christ's love that we can be more than conquerors. conquerors excuse me. The conquest is over our flesh and sin, by the way. Sometimes some Christians are going out looking for an in, uh, external enemy to take names and to defeat. And the answer is you've got to beat yourself. That, that's your enemy. That was Adam's foe in the garden. Our chief foe lies within us. Christ's mediation in heaven is over our sinfulness. This is what he reconciles. This is what he has empathy over because he was one of us. He lived as us. This is the better testament or covenant, as he says, because it is built upon the better promise that Christ will never leave us and never forsake us. That was not the case in the Old Testament law. The writer describes the obvious pattern of Christ's ministry and mediation. Next in our notes, he moves to the dissolution of the Old Testament. Dissolution just means the dissolving of it, the ending of it, the passing of it. And this is where this morning, this is a technical message. I'm trying to make it very practical and applicable because the Bible always is, but it's technical. That's why when we read Hebrews, we get to some of these chapters and our eyes cross and we go, I give up. I can't do it. It's actually easily understood if we keep the main thing the main thing. What is he talking about here? He's talking about the Old Testament being done. He's talking about the New Testament having begun. The dissolution of the Old Testament is found in verses 7 through 12. We continue our reading. For if that first covenant had been faultless, if it had been perfect, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Pause for a second. He's referencing Jeremiah 31, verses 31 and following. An Old Testament prophecy to the house of Israel that looks completely over our age and the Gentile world. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Just a fascinating thought to me. God's afterthoughts are deeper and more profound than our best thoughts. That's what we take from this. We continue reading, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind, write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember No more. The covenant that God made with Israel was rock solid because it was built upon him. The people of the covenant were the problem. That's what the writer is here telling these poor Jewish readers. God cannot have a people who reject him. Thus the law was flawed, not in its writing, not in the law itself or in the lawgiver, but in the audience or the recipients of the law. The replacing of the testament we're going to find in chapter 9 and verse 16 comes with the death of a testator. So that which is dissolving has a pattern to it. It has to pass away. And for it to pass away, there has to be a cause or a reason. What is the reason for the dissolution, letter A, by Israel's disobedience? Verses 7, 8, and 9 tell us that. Over and again in the Old Testament, we would read of Israel being a stiff-necked and hard-hearted people. But the Old Testament is a story of God's love for His people and their ultimate rejection of Him. The sad truth is that Israel rejected God. It is interesting, from the very outset of this covenant... In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 8, God lays before the people what they must do to follow Him. And they say, I would argue ignorantly and arrogantly, all that He says we will do. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? I mean, as a dad, I want my three kids, Dad, whatever you say, I'll do it. Praise the Lord, son, way to go. Do I think they'll do it perfectly? No, not on your life, because I was a rotten, stinking kid that my parents had to chasten quite a bit. Right? I, I'm pretty sure when they kicked me out of Bible college way back in the day, they weren't like, well, this is a really holy kid. <laughs> they, I wasn't, okay? 
And so we understand that sometimes in our ignorance and in our arrogance, we make promises that we can't keep. And that was the problem inherently with the law. This is why it ultimately failed, because it was built upon flawed people. Or it was dependent upon them. God always kept his half of the covenant. It's Israel that did not. It was the answer of complete ignorance, one author says. Before long, they were making the golden calf. From Exodus chapter 19, it isn't long until Moses goes up to receive the law in chapter 20. And what does Aaron do? Well, the people made me make this calf. The people wanted it. In fact, the greatest answer in all of the Bible is when Moses comes down. He said, hey, man, we just started a fire and put the gold in it. Oh, pop these calves. What a lie. We didn't mean to disobey God. By the way, that's what we often do. It's in ignorance. The old pattern, kill another goat, find you a bull, get you a lamb. This is going to be a long day. It's going to be a bloody one. In the New Testament, we don't have to crucify Christ again. He's once our sacrifice for all. He is our Savior. By the way, it's interesting as well, if you go and read Exodus chapter 32, verses 1 through 14, Moses actually becomes the mediator for Israel. What does God say to him? Hey, look, I'm done with these losers. I'm killing them all. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. I mean, Moses was in the negotiating seat, wasn't he? That's a good deal. King of the world. And Moses says what? As a mediator. No, no, no. Lord, I know you don't really mean this. You're a God who honors your own name and honors your own word. You honor your own covenant. This isn't who you are. Effectively is what Moses argues in retort to God's challenge. God was pleased in his mediator, and that mediator Moses was a type of what Christ does for us in heaven. It was through Israel's disobedience that the Old Testament had to dissolve. When Jesus Christ came and they was presented to them as the Messiah, what was their reply? Crucify. Crucify. Until it was a blood-curdling cry from the crowd, Crucify Him! And they did. Their disobedience brought the end to their dispensation, we could say. But it was also dissolved from God's desire, verses 10, 11, and 12. It is a truth that no one can demand forgiveness from God. I receive it. I accept it, I'm blessed by it, but I do not earn it. I cannot demand it, and I am not owed it. It is God who chooses to forgive. He, choo- he chose excuse me, to create in the first place, and in creating man, God knew that Adam would fail. So His grace prepared before the world began an established plan of redemption. There's an interesting truth in verses 8 through 13, if you read them here in chapter 8 of Hebrews, you will find six times the phrase, I will. The Old Testament, that of the law, is of Israel replying, we will, we will, we will. But the new covenant with better promises is God saying to his people, I will, I will, I will. You say, well, what does that teach me? It teaches me you have nothing to do with your salvation. There's nothing that you can do. We will do nothing. He will do everything. It's a wonderful thing that he says in verse 14, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee. Excuse me, I'm in the wrong chapter. There's a good I will there. In verse number 10, I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make, verse 10, with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind. I will be to them a God. He has the sense that he is the one that is the driver. He's the one that's in control. The law let the Israelites think in their frailty and their humanity that they had some component. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Hey, Lord, I've kept all of the commandments since my youth. What do I need to do to get to heaven? And Jesus says, go sell all that you have and give to the poor. I can't do that. Are you kidding me? No way. And the Bible says he went away what? Sorrowful. Because the law he had kept perfectly, but in his heart there was no relationship with God. There was no true understanding of who God was and certainly not of who the person talking to him, Jesus Christ. Christ patterns his ministry of mediation to deliver a New Testament, we can say, because he has dissolved the Old Testament the writer is teaching them. The writer closes by stating, number three, the dispensation is over. Now, this is a word that some who don't 
often attend church or some who attend church but don't often study deep theological things might say, I don't know what dispensation is. I know what the word dispense is, right? When I go to the ATM and I put my card in and punch in my numbers, it dispenses to me that which is mine from that little box there at the, at the bank. Eh, there's actually some truth in that. There's some understanding then practically for us. A dispensation is just the management or administration of the affairs of a house. That's what it means to be in a dispensation, how it is supposed to be managed, how those affairs are to be administered. The concept is how we've come to understand the work of God and the Word of God. There's a word called hermeneutics. Herm who? And the answer is hermeneutics. It just means how you read the Bible. I'm going to ask a question that might make some of your eyes open wide and some of them roll back in the back of your head. Did Adam get saved the same way you and I do? Some say yes, some say no, and the rest say, go on, pastor, you tell us. (laughs) Well, dispensationalism or understanding dispensations helps us to understand this truth. That's what verse 13 is about here in Hebrews. Let's read it. In that he saith, now what is that he saith? He's talking about the the five verses before, six verses before, seven through twelve. He says, a new covenant, he hath made the first old. So in that he saith, a new covenant. All right, so he's saying these phrases, new covenant, new covenant, new covenant, new covenant. He has to make the old one go away. Now, that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. That is the passing of the old dispensation or that of the law and the bringing in of grace of a new dispensation. Charles Ryrie has a lot to say on it, simply to say he's a great theologian and one worthy of your study. He says this, The essence of dispensationalism is, one, the recognition of a consistent distinction between Israel and the church. It's interesting, in this we're talking about Israel receiving a new covenant, and this new covenant that we're actually talking about jumps over us. Let that sink in this morning. You are an afterthought to God. How does that make you feel? Well, you're not an afterthought to God, obviously, but in this passage you are, because he's only dealing with the Jewish nation. In fact, Jeremiah chapter 31, the prophet Jeremiah had no concept of who the church was. As he stood giving that prophecy to Israel in Jeremiah 31, he's talking about them being in captivity then, them coming out of captivity, and what life would be like in the millennial kingdom. It hasn't happened yet, I don't think. Has the rapture happened? Some of you are like, I hope not. Some of you are like, what is that? We're going to explain it. He's talking about the millennial kingdom in particular in this passage. And so he's literally jumping over 2,000 years. It's quite a jump. I mean, it's a couple of details there. What that tells us is God's infinite nature and his omniscience and his knowing, his knowledge that he has, is so grand that in dealing with Israel, he could tell them how their future and history would be and also include us as a part of it. These of the Israelites, these Jews were trying or were becoming part of the church. They were trying to extract themselves from the Old Testament. And what he's teaching them is there's a new covenant for Israel. Wait for that. Live in this. The old is waxing and decaying. Now I'll give you eight in your, on your notes. There are eight dispensations. We're not going to deal with all of these. I'm just going to note these. Because if I deal with all of them, we'll be here until next Tuesday. The first dispensation in the Bible is innocence. It lasts, if you have your notes, you can look at it. It lasts Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6. What happens in Genesis 3, 6? Adam sinned. Okay, no longer innocence. Why, Why do we know that ends that age? Because the Bible says he now knew good and evil. Before he only knew good. He was innocent in his perfection. He could walk and talk with God. That brought in conscience. We find it runs from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 7 to Genesis chapter 8 and verse 14. What happens in Genesis chapter 8 if you work or go to the ark? What happens in Genesis chapter 8? The flood. Well, what is said of the people leading up to Noah's flood? Their thoughts were evil continually. In other words, their conscience was so corrupted that God could no longer work in a dispensation or an economy with mankind from a pure conscience because they weren't pure anymore. 
The next dispensation is that of civil government. They walk off the ark, and what does God tell Noah? There's literally eight people alive, but he tells Noah, if you shed blood by man's hands, shall your blood be spilt. He's saying this is the authority of human governance. And he trusted human government. That lasted from Genesis chapter 8, verse 15, till Genesis chapter 11 and verse 9. You say, what happens in Genesis chapter 11? I think it's just a bunch of names. Well, good for you. You're correct. It's just a bunch of names until we get down to Terah, or Terah as some pronounce his name. He was the father of Abram, and he was called. Abram ultimately was the one who received the call of God out of Ur of the Chaldees, and God makes a covenant with what we call the patriarchs. We call that a covenant age. There is an agreement of blessing on those that bless Abraham and a cursing on those that curse Abraham. Abraham, because of his faith, had righteousness imputed to him, Romans chapter 4 tells us. We find then that that covenant lasts until Exodus 18. Well, all of us know what happens in Exodus chapter 20 because we've been preaching on it this morning. What happens? God gives the law. And so the law is ushered in in Exodus 19 and 20. If you will keep my law, then you, Israel, the descendants of the patriarchs, you, Israel, you 12 tribes and your children forever will be blessed by me if you'll keep this. And we just closed it in Hebrews 8 and verse 13. You say, well, did it close there? Technically, it closed in Jesus' death burial, resurrection, and his ascension. When he ascended in Acts chapter 1 and verse, uh, uh, verse 11, in chapter 2 and verse 1 of Acts, what happens? The Holy Spirit descends. The empowering of the new dispensation, the one that we presently live in, began that day. It's called the day of Pentecost. It began on that very high and holy day. And on that day, it has never ended. And it will not end until Revelation 4 and verse 1, and that is the rapture. And you say, when does that happen, Pastor? And I say, your guess is as good as mine. Jerk. Why don't you just tell us? I wish I could tell you. We joke around the office, Edward always believes, and I think probably not too far off, that the rapture likely will happen in, on the Day of Atonement in a September uh, around that time. It doesn't have to. We're told in the Bible that it will, happen on a, uh, it will happen, we don't know the day and the hour, but we know all of the things that are leading up to it. We know the signs that teach of it, and so it will happen. And that's why I only live righteous in September. Some of you are like, oh, really? That's all we got? The other 11 I can do? No. That's not necessarily a guarantee. The point is, that's when it will end. The seven-year tribulation is either its own dispensation. I don't think it is. It's called Jacob's trouble. It's the 70th week. It's the culmination of the law. Because they rejected them, what happens to Israel? They're attacked on all sides. They literally are hiding in hovel holes of the world, in caves and nooks and crannies. And for those seven years, they are persecuted until... The Bible says Jesus comes and sets foot down on this earth again. Zechariah chapter 14, and it happens in Revelation chapter 20. It is then in Revelation 20 that we see the millennial kingdom. That is the seventh dispensation. In the Bible, seven is important. What does it stand for? Completion. You say, this is a lot of deep teaching. I told you the last point was, but there's a practical application. Hang in there, I promise you. After the Millennial Kingdom, what happens? If you read your Bible carefully, at the end of chapter 19 and chapter 20 of Revelation, at the end of chapter 20, the devil is released, and there is a battle of Armageddon, and it all ends, and chapter 21, everything is new. That would be the eighth dispensation, the eternal state, all things are new. These are the workings of God. When he talks about here in verse 13, in that he saith a new covenant... He hath made the first old, or he's done away with it. It's no longer necessary is the phrasing there. These are the workings of God with man. Salvation has always been a gift of God in response to faith. From Adam until us and beyond. It is acting in faith to God's revelation of his truth. We know that Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of that plan. Adam sacrificed at the gate of the garden. So did Cain and Abel. Cain's was not accepted. Abel's was. Why? Because Abel sacrificed a blood sacrifice. He did not offer that sacrifice and say, this is Jesus Christ who will come. If all of them in the Old Testament knew that, then when Jesus Christ came, why didn't they accept him? 
We understand what the writer is trying to tell us, and here is the practical application. How does a dispensation end? Letter A, by God declaring it. It's over. It's by declaration. By the way, how will this dispensation end whenever it happens? By God declaring it. The Bible says there will be a shout from heaven, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God shall sound. And we will be caught up together to meet him in the, in the clouds. It will end then. By the way, how do we know the declaration of this age was over? Jeremiah 31 and verses 31 says this, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. You say, that sounds like what we just read. Yes, it is. The writer of Hebrews is trying to tell them, Listen, you all should know that the old was going to pass away. And it did. Wake up. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I have made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord. In other words, they went and played the whore. You can read that over and over and over again in the Old Testament. God hates their leaving of him. He hates their rejection of him. And because of it and their disobedience, he declares its end. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law into their inward parts, write it in their hearts, and will be their God. And they shall be my people, and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know me. From the least unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and will remember their sins no more. This is the reference of the writer of Hebrews. It is, in fact, a new covenant that is beyond our age of grace. But there are principles that we can draw from it. If you've asked Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, he no longer remembers your sins. I don't know how an omniscient God doesn't remember my sin anymore, but if he tells me he doesn't, then he doesn't, because he's God. The promise of a new covenant was to Israel because God loves Israel. How much does he love him? Later in that very same chapter. This is why, by the way, the writer of Hebrews uses Jeremiah 31. Here's what he says in verse 37. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured. Can you measure the universe? Nope. I mean, they say it's like 95 trillion million billion light years across, but that's all that we can observe. Literally, the universe is ever expanding from the day of creation. So how big is the universe? Nearly infinite. Only one thing is infinite, and that's God. He says, if heaven above can be measured, it can't, and the foundations of the earth be searched out beneath, in other words, why it acts and behaves the way it does. Science is getting close, but we know more about the moon than we do about the earth. It's an amazing fact to me, by the way. He says, I will also cast off all the seed of Israel. In other words, if you can measure the universe, if you can get it down to exact measurement in science, then I'll throw off Israel. And the answer is you never will. And so he never will. God ends a dispensation and he alone opens another. It is at his discretion, for it is his decision, and thus it is his declaration. The Old Testament did not perceive the church. Their promises were foreign to Israel. The prophets foretold of Israel's covenant being changed in Jeremiah, but said nothing of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the relationship with God, but Jesus did. Thank goodness for Jesus. That's why he's a better pattern. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, the Bible says, Go ye therefore, Jesus speaking, go ye therefore and teach whom? All nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So be it, he says. How long will our church age last, you might ask? If it ended in the Old Testament for Israel, how long will this age last? Your guess is as good as mine. I mean, we have some signs. It'll be wickedness like the days of Noah. How is America doing right now? The most holy Christian nation in the world. Not too great. I'll leave it at that. I was talking with someone after the first hour, worried about when the tribulation will be and how it will come, and that's not the point of this message. I did note the other day, though, the Pope sat down with all of the top imams of the Muslim faith, and they all said, we really just have one faith. We're close. I mean, if I had a breadboard, I'd walk outside. The end is near, ringing a bell. I'm kidding. Don't do that. Just as Israel's dispensation ended, 
this dispensation will end too. What comes next is trouble and tribulation for this earth. Why did the old decay, and why will this one decay, or why did it end? And the answer is through its own decay, letter B. The law was never intended to provide salvation. The writer has made that explanation clear through all of Hebrews, and he will continue to make it clear as we see next week. The law was to prove that men are sinners, and we are. Romans 3, verses 19 and 20, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. That does not sound like salvation. That sounds like depression. I mean, that's depressing. The law didn't do anything for you. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin, not salvation. God does not find fault with the old covenant, but with the people of that covenant. The law is spiritual, but men were carnal, Paul said in Romans 7, 14. They were sold under sin. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, he makes it clear that the law was weak through the flesh. He says this, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sin, full flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, because He was perfect. That's why He's a superior pattern for us to follow. In other words, the failure of Israel could not be blamed on the weakness of the covenant itself, but on the weakness of their human nature. And so it is for us. It is not God that keeps you from heaven. It is you refusing to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. The old in the law decayed because it was dependent upon man keeping their end of a testament. The new covenant is written in the blood of Jesus Christ. What a joy. What a glory. The picture of decay and waxing old is of our old natural man and, and our old flesh. In Adam, it dies, yet in Christ, we all may live. So in closing this morning, Christ is superior in His pattern of ministry and mediation. He is the perfect sacrifice we've read in chapter 8. He is the fulfillment of the law. He, the living Word, has put forth His Word that ought to be in our hearts and in our minds. There is coming a day in the millennial kingdom where Christ will physically rule from Jerusalem, and it will be the law of not the land but of the whole earth. It is presently how we live according to this Word, because in that day they will live only according to His Word. He is gracious and merciful to our unrighteousness and our sinfulness and our iniquities. He chooses not to remember them anymore when we ask for His forgiveness. It is in Jesus Christ that our old man is put to death. It will vanish and decay permanently when this life is over. Hallelujah. For now, it ought to be vanishing day by day as the new man in Christ emerges. That is Christ's pattern. And these 13 little verses teach us that the old pattern was good, but it's not ultimately useful for our growth. But Christ and His pattern is. Father, help us, I pray this morning.